0: Hello and welcome back to Chit Heads. I'm Khalid, one of the learning navigators at Embodied Philosophy, and I'm excited to open up this episode. This episode of Chit Heads is a talk from Joe Lewitzo, republished from Embodied Philosophy's 2020 Yoga Seminar. Joseph Lewitzo is a Harvard-trained psychiatrist and Columbia-trained Buddhist scholar with over 40 years' experience studying the beneficial effects of contemplative practices on healing, learning, and development. Joe is the founder and academic director of the Nalanda Institute. He is assistant professor of clinical psychiatry and integrative medicine at Vale Cornell Medical College, where he researches and teaches contemplative self-healing and optimal health. He has taught the philosophy of science and religion, the scientific study of contemplative states, and the Indo-Tibetan Mind and Health Sciences at Columbia University, where he is adjunct assistant professor at the Columbia Center for Buddhist Studies. In this episode, Joe guides us through the great scientific revolution of the 21st century, the rediscovery of embodied mind and the arts of mind-brain integration. Setting the stage by reviewing the modern history of the mind-body problem in the West, he surveys the last few decades of breakthroughs in research on stress, plasticity, yoga, and meditation that have recently converged in the emerging multidisciplinary paradigm of mind-body integration. We hope you enjoy.
1: I'm going to talk about something that Really, you know, frustrates the heck of, out of me as a as a psychiatrist, as a as a researcher, and to some extent as a human being, which is how the embodied mind has just fallen through the cracks in modern science. And again, this may not be so obvious if you're coming at this from the standpoint of someone who's very interested in following the latest trends, which are really showing really what the mind-body connection is all about. Uh, but what I want to try to impress on you is what a complete reversal of, of tides, uh, the, this growing interest in the interaction between mind, nervous system, body, and, and environment, uh, what a complete reversal it is. That, and when I went to medical school, uh, as a colleague of mine, Dan Siegel, likes to, likes to complain, uh, even as a psychiatrist, Nobody ever really said the word mind and no, certainly nobody ever thought about defining mind or defining consciousness, except in one specific way. So we'll start with that. All right. So pretty much I would say anybody you stop on the street would give you a definition and maybe not highly reflective, but some kind of definition of what mind or consciousness is. Uh, the Buddhist definition is clarifying awareness, right? Awareness that, sh- a quality of awareness that sheds light on uh, information or things to be understood or things to be known. But what most neuroscientists and physicians and psychiatrists will tell you, uh, and you may have had this experience in dialogue or in speaking to uh, uh, colleagues or or, uh, even your own therapist or your own uh, doctor uh, is this, that the mind is nothing but an emergent property of brain mechanics. So that's our current really default. And if you if you think this is kind of like a an extreme or stilted position, like in other words, that this can't be true, right? If you're thinking this can't be true, we have to have more of awareness of mind than that. Um, you know, there you can count on one hand. I mean, literally, the number of neuroscientists who have academic positions now, who are uh, at all, talking about mind as not entirely simply a function of brain, right? You can count them on one hand, and uh, and generally they're not people who are, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, very much sort of, uh, you know, uh, flaunting their membership card in the Neuroscience Society. Uh, this is really the the dogma today, and um, how do we get there? Right, because if you know. Uh, and, and so I'll, I'll sort of look at this paradox from two from two points of view. I think mean, there's two ways in which we can understand, you know, what happened to our relationship with mind in the West. One is to look at the mind-body problem, right? And And that is to really understand that there's been a major struggle in the West to understand what the relationship between mind and body are, even though... Almost every other culture throughout history, including the Greeks, and almost every medical system throughout history, has always simply assumed that there's a a powerful interaction between mind and and nervous system and body, and found a language to describe that. In the West, somehow, this we we've sort of lost that language, Uh, and and that's left with. Uh, you know, a a comment made by Gilbert Ryle, uh, that mind has become sort of like a ghost in the machine, right? Mechanism, the understanding of how the body works and how the brain works and the nervous system works, is so informed by uh, reductive physics, mechanics, uh, that actually really, we understand the mechanism of the brain so much better than we ever did before, right? It's, It's really awesome. I mean, it's beautiful. But we, we're really in kindergarten, or, or not even in kindergarten, I don't know where we are. Nobody is talking about how mind interacts with the brain. Uh, you know, uh, again, w- you know, there's, there's two exceptions to this, and that's what I'm gonna really raise for you two areas of research where this has been challenged, and that's perhaps where, you know, where our, our great interest is overlaps. So the idea is, what's this problem? There's, there's two. There's a hard problem, as David Chalmers said, uh, which I believe is kind of a, a metaphysical problem, and I'll try to explain what I mean by that. It's an artifact of a certain set of assumptions. But if you think about it this way, so here where you have the brain, which is, what do you look at if you take some brain tissue and put it under a slide, and then you have mind, which is, what is it? What is the experience of? Uh, Uh, you know, what is our conscious awareness or experience of life? Well, we don't actually normally see nerve cells, right? We're just using them. (laughs) What we see is the color green, right? We see an experience, a a, a phenomenal uh, qualia, as some people like to say, or or a, a secondary quality, as Galileo said. And that's one problem, which is how does my mind relate to my body as we know it? The other problem is how does mind relate to the outer world, right? Is there a way, I, can I really know what's going on inside of another person's mind? Uh, uh, Hume believed not. He thought maybe, all, maybe other people could just be robots as far as, as, far as we know. And in fact, uh, you know, there's, in any case, there's a real uh, paucity of, expa- of explanatory models to say how mind is actually part of nature, right? We, we generally think of mind, as, the only way we can think of mind as part of nature as, as scientifically educated Westerns is to think of mind as brain, which we know evolved. Then we have a way to describe it. But if we talk about mind as what I why do I experience green? We don't have a language for that in Western science. So we've got these two holes, these two uh, gulfs and they're like gaping holes at the heart of any mind body discipline. Like psychiatry, supposed to be the, the, the discipline by which we understand, uh, we heal the, the soul. I mean, psyche means soul or spirit, right? Uh, but not only do we not have a soul, we don't even have a mind, right? Because, you know, as, as you're, if, if anybody's been to an, uh, a psychiatrist lately, uh, what they'll tell you is you have a neurotransmitter imbalance. (laughs) They won't say you might be a little depressed. They'll say, you know, your neurotransmitters are off here. Let me give you some chemical for that. And there's a reason there's, you know, several hundred years of science that have led to that absurd situation where, uh, you know, uh, people can't talk about mind and brain in the same, in the same conversation. And this is true of any discipline, like psychotherapy or neuropsychology or embodied therapies or mind-body health. There's a real hole at the heart of it. And, and I, what I'm going to suggest to you is that this is not an accident. It's, it, 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 and it's not necessary because there, most cultures have a way of explaining how mind connects to energy, connects to body. And certainly what, from what you know of your of yoga, and the in, in the in the Indic tradition, that's the model. Mind is a subtle phenomena that connects to energy, is supported by energy, and energy connects to f- the physical matter. And and you know that's a simple explanatory model that is no longer available to us. <clears throat> so what I'll say is that this is actually an artifact, right? This is what I'm going to say. That that basically the reason why we have this fractured view, in which Our brain is over here, like our brain is in the laboratory or in the psychiatrist's office. If we go into a psychotherapist's office, at least if we have a good psychotherapist, we have a mind. In the psychiatrist's office, we don't have a mind. (laughs) We just have a brain, Okay, And I don't know if you can get the two of them together, Okay, Uh, In the the neuroscience laboratory, we don't have a mind, right? In in a, a synagogue or in the yoga class, we do. Okay, but in our culture, we don't have a place where these things come together. And I believe this is, this, this is a result of a fault lines. <clears throat> conceptual cracks that are built into the foundations of modern scientific thought. And I'm very just going to quickly review some of the history that uh, I hang my hat on there that, that I'll try to sort of help you see a timeline or a set of, dot, uh, of dots that you can connect and see how we got here to this weird place. But basically what it does is our embodied social, our, our lives as embodied social animals, right? Animal, that is spirit. Animals means animated or, or animate or, or conscious sentient beings that have a body and connect to others. That's fractured into what we now call, what I'm gonna call reductive dualism, which is we have a mind over here, we have a body over there. And uh, somehow they're not really, dialoguing with each other. So if you look at Galileo, he said, at the, it's the sort of one of the grandfathers of modern science, that there's, there's subjective qualities of things and there's objective qualities. And objective qualities are things that are inherent in external physical objects that we can, we can study with math and we can measure. And he said, that's the foundation for science. If we want real knowledge, we've got to forget about are subjective qualities, because we don't have a science for that. And in fact, th- he didn't say this, but part of the reason is because he was ceding that turf to the church. Otherwise, he would have gotten roasted on the, on the pyre, OK? He would have, uh, because he did come before the Inquisition several times, despite all the protectors that he had. And so he was going to say, don't worry, church. I'll give you the mind. You can have it. I just want. The the matter and I'll all have a science based on just the study of matter, but already now we have a split and it's related to the split between science and and religion and our culture. Uh, Bacon said something similar, which is that you can study things in different ways, but the scientific way of studying them is to break things down into their little pieces and to uh, Measure them quantitatively and then deduce uh you know uh patterns or things from them right it's not to 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 you know take a survey and ask people what they think it's to break th- things down to their smaller pieces smallest pieces and try to see how they behave mechanically that's minus the human element. Descartes sort of added so that's already about breaking the the subjective our, our internal experience of life from the External world and this happened really as far back as the as the 15th century the 16th century Then Descartes came along and he's usually the one that's accused of creating the mind-body problem Uh, But you can see it already was starting and that's where he said the mind and body are two separate Realities one is a machine the body it just operates Inanimately without consciousness like a machine the other is the mind which is just a thinking thing and it doesn't really, it has its own set of laws that are completely independent. So the two touch, actually he thought that they connected in the pineal gland. And that might be where your mind could whisper little secrets to the body or something like that, or, or understand what was happening in the body. But Basically he, he created, he, he split the human li- mind and body in half and said, you know, again, the body is the, su- is the subject of science and that's all, it's just a machine. And the mind is the subject of philosophy. And that's just a thinking process, right? It's just a, uh, a conversation. Uh, Hobbes took things a little bit further and said, and, and pushed us in the direction that we now have in neuroscience by saying that mind and body actually aren't, aren't two separate things. They're two labels for the same Physical thing. So Hobbes is the first in in the West to really take the position that most neuroscientists take, which is that there's only one thing, which is brain. Uh, it just that uh, its function or its properties are experienced as mind, but they're really just brain, right? So we're just kind of deluded when we think we have a mind. We're kind of confused. Because the rea- the reality is we just have a brain. Um, Isaac, you know, Newton also added to this by talking about, by saying knowledge and, and reality are unitary. And that started to lead this whole shift away from dualism in, a, in any complicated sense, toward a sense that the physical world is a unit. And then as some people, like um, some scholars of religion like to say, the mind is then just left floating off in the void. It is a ghost in the machine or it's just, it's floating off somewhere in a a tunnel, and it's not really connected to nature at all, right? Nature is mechanical, mind is, you know, just epiphenomenal, it's just, that means to say it's just along for the ride, it's just an accident, it's not really part of anything. And and unfortunately, Darwin contributed to this by finding a mechanistic uh, uh, formula for how life evolves and changes his model of natural selection, which is based on the understanding that, that there are random variations in genes. And those are just random mechanical things. They're not intended or designed or intelligent in any way. They just happen because you toss the dice and then life changes because of those random mutations and, and how that interacts with the environment. So basically, again, the. Machine is kind of taking over. The machine model is taking over. And the, and the space that mind occupies is we're getting more and more marginalized into maybe church or maybe the therapist's office. But most, most places in our society, we don't really have a mind. Uh, unfortunately, Freud initially, actually, Freud started out as a neuroscience researcher. Uh, he started out in Ernst Brucker's lab. Right around, right after the discovery of, bio, of, of electricity, of uh, the laws of thermodynamics by Helmholtz and bioelectricity uh, by Broca. And Freud was busy working on squid axons to see how they might be transmitting electrical information. But the idea is then that, yeah, it's just proving that the brain is like a machine. It operates based on mechanical laws. Um, and his first psychology was based on trying to reduce all mental operations to neural operations. Fortunately for us, he had to give up on that because there wasn't enough neuroscience. So he had to retire and, there were, and, and start and put up his shingle as a psychoanalyst. And in order to do that, he developed a whole new approach to the mind where he returned to a kind of dualism. He said, Yes, the mind may be, the body, the brain may be a machine. But somehow alongside it or interacting with it, there's this thing we call mind that operates according to its own mechanical laws. So here's the sort of uh, structure chart, the organizational chart, the flow chart of science. This is the modern kind of ontological or foundationalist understanding that all real knowledge starts with the billiard balls of atoms. And physics is the first discipline there. Then, based on that, we understand how uh, chemistry occurs, how different molecules interact with each other. Based on that, we understand biology, because we understand DNA, and that that's the backbone of life. Then we understand that DNA generates brains, so we have neuroscience. And then psychology is the understanding of what it feels like to have a brain. And social science is the understanding of what a lot of people feel like having brains with each other. Uh, but basically all of that is very fluffy and it's not real science, it's kind of fluff science. The real science is the hard science and you know, basically we're, we're the, the mind is split off from being really involved. It's not really a moving piece of the mechanism, right? The mechanism is, is really about billiard balls, molecules Doesn't have anything to do with mind. The mind is just along for the ride. And that's why we have a culture that really doesn't value the cultivation of the mind, and really where we have to push very hard to help people see the value in mind body work or mind body integration. So that's the bad news. This is, we've got, we come from five centuries of mind being, you know, sucked out of the the world and put into this little box in the corner somewhere that doesn't really matter. And uh, you know, again, you know, Freud uh, is maybe a kind of middleman here because he he did ultimately he found a little place for the mind within his psychoanalysis. That's a kind of you know he tried to make it sci- scientifically respectable by describing the mind in terms of what we knew about the brain. Basically, that's psychoanalysis. Uh, so that, it's a, our scientific psychology. But you know, uh, nowadays, it's not really considered to be, uh, to be uh, particularly scientifically valid. People don't consider psychoanalysis scientifically valid anymore. Uh, and, h- however, biological psychiatry, which is uh, another colleague or, or teacher of his, uh, but Emil Kreplon is this uh, psychiatrist who really started to, to describe. Uh, mental illnesses as brain diseases. So he's the father of the psychopharmacology. When you go to your psychopharmacologist, they're like his disciples, and they're going to tell you everything that's going on in your mind can be reduced to or caused by, is caused by chemicals in your brain. And I can tell you what chemicals are off, and I can tell you it's probably somehow genetic. And here, you take this pill just like as if you had diabetes, and you're going to be fine. And guess what? Uh, That doesn't explain all that much and it actually really isn't even valid from the standpoint of current research. If you ask any really good neuroscientist or or neurophysiological researcher, they'll say that whole neurotransmitter hypothesis is actually hogwash. Uh, uh, Mental conditions are so much more complicated than neurotransmitters, Uh, the simple reality being even the most genetically determined illness is only 20 to 40% genetically determined so right there, the whole argument goes out the window uh, because you know 60 to 80 percent of why you walked into my office has nothing to do with your neurotransmitters. <laughs> but they don't tell you that. okay? You have a neurotransmitter imbalance, that's what they tell us, right? Uh, talking therapy so it goes in this other direction, which is more mind-centered, and thank goodness we have it. but it's still not very tied into neuroscience. That's why developments in psychotherapy, have lagged behind uh, and are not often in dialogue with developments in neuroscience um, so basically uh, you know while we got into this predicament that's say taking us up to the middle of the 20th century so meanwhile, in basic science, in physics in biology, and biology and even in neuroscience um, paradigms were shifting, right? So all of this edifice that I described to you with the everything stacked on the little atoms, that's all from the 19th century. That's still the way doctors are trained. It's still the way most scientists think, but it actually goes back to the 19th century. 20th century physics, biology, and neuroscience are very different from that model. And I'll try to share with you how that is, right? We have Albert here uh, and he did, uh, he, don't you love that? It looks like he's, he's on laughing gas or maybe he, he sort of put his finger in a socket. But the reality is uh, he gave us relativity and more importantly started to dissolve the notion of the solid atoms. And once you have the mass, the mass energy equivalence, for example, right? You have the understanding that mass is energy, is information right, Uh, that it's wave-like as well as particulate. So this whole notion that matter is so solid and everything else rests on it is kind of like dissolved or upended. And you have a whole new understanding that nature itself is very fuzzy and you can't put your finger on it. So maybe it's not as different from mind as we thought, right, maybe actually mind is really also a part of this nature that's very fuzzy and wave-like and fluid and intangible, just like quanta. Okay? So that's one of the kind of uh, shifts that took place in physics. Then in biology, we have Ludwig von Bertalanffy, who described what we call systems theory. Most of us have heard of systems theory. It's this way of understanding complexity. And that does the complete opposite of what Francis Bacon told us to do. Instead of breaking things down to their little parts and then understanding how everything works, it says, you can't understand how everything works in parts. you have to see how the parts work together in a whole. So it's like holism, integral theory, all of this comes out of systems theory, and this is really the new trend in biology because actually, everything is infinitely complicated, and we're now able to have a language for that and talk about it. Uh, and you know, these paradigm shifts also showed us that science isn't just unitary it's not like a dogma that stays rigid forever and we have Thomas Kuhn for example talking about revolutions in physics uh, and revolutions in science and pointing out this whole notion that there are different paradigms and paradigms depend on what we need them to do right so like we could have a quantum paradigm that's good if we want to understand how everything connects with everything else we could have a Uh, Newtonian paradigm that helps us break everything down into little pieces for different problems. So that's a way of thinking about science that's much more complicated. uh, That, that uh, again, it's it's not where most scientists are now. Most scientists are trained in you do it either one way or you do it the other way. Um, David Bohm is a physicist who sort of took the road to to integral theory and described how quantum, how you could have a quantum reality, which also uh, explained, um, you know, the, um, the, the that wholeness was impl- was uh, was uh, present in everything, that everything was sort of holographically integrated with everything else, because of the quantum nature of all matter ultimately, and that quantum nature is really holographic rather than rather than particular. So that was his view and you know you could say Karl Popper contributed uh, with his philosophy of science but I'm, I'm not going to go into it very far except to just say he introduced a kind of real humility about we shouldn't really get too bought into our scientific paradigms because all we know is they haven't been proved they haven't been proven false yet. We don't really know if they've been proven true because all we, all we need is another experiment that sh- shows they're false, and then they're false. <laughs> so this is, introduces a kind of open-mindedness uh, into science that wasn't true in the 19th century and really isn't true of our scientific worldview. Our scientific worldview is not very open-minded in general. Many people many people think of it as scientistic because that is to say like a religion or a worldview of science rather than science per se, because uh, there's a lot of things we assume about the nature of reality, like you know the mind is reducible to the brain and so on, or like we, when we die, uh, we turn into uh, uh, you know, 79 cents worth of chemicals um, simply because of particular scientific models that may not actually be entirely true or may only be partially true or maybe disproven next week. Some of the changes in science were were embodied in new approaches to psychotherapy that emphasized much more relationality, right, and talked more about uh, how uh, the mind and the brain develop through a dialogue between caregivers and the the brains of the young. And that introduced this whole notion of uh, intersubjective or interpersonal psychology and Meanwhile, there are also analysts, Jung and Reich, who are sort of, you know, rebel analysts, who are talking about the connection between the mind and the body. So, again, psychoanalysis became a kind of closet uh, way that the mind, like a Trojan horse, a way that the mind got back into the, into the game, uh, and, and where people were trying to make sense of how the mind actually is connected inside and out my mind connected to your mind uh and um and mind was also connected to body they're trying to figure this out but these never became sort of mainstream uh, traditions <clears throat> and of course here uh, this is david bowman having a conversation with krishnamurti because what he discovered uh was based on the indian philosophy of of uh, dualism which i'll introduce to you a little bit later so here we already have really the the global world and the and the convergence of Indic civilization with Western civilization. This is what the historian Arnold Toynbee, my favorite historian, uh, the, the father of, of world history, really said. The event of our century, the 21st century, is going to be the coming together of uh, Asian, uh, you know, a Buddhist or, or Hindu culture with Western Christian culture, and that's going to be the main event the main culture event of the century. And so far, I think he's been pretty right on. Francesco Varela was a meditator who developed, uh, who combined complexity theory with connectionist neuroscience and meditation research and found and developed a really very interesting multidisciplinary science of mind I'll describe to you later. This is a whole new way of thinking about studying the mind and the brain together, right? So having somebody who's a trained meditator on the inside of the machine telling you, okay, here's what I'm feeling right now. I'm feeling my energy is kind of lower. It's going over there. And then you're reading what's happening in the in the brain scan. And you're comparing what he's saying or she's saying to what you're seeing on the brain scan and having a kind of real dialogical interactive way of studying the mind. Um, this is still not standard practice, but there are a few neuroscientists who are doing research this way. Thank goodness. Uh, another integral model is Ken Wilber's, uh, who also studied, uh, studied Buddhism in particular, was very influenced by Nagarjuna, who I'll also introduce to you, a Buddhist Indian philosopher who was a physician and a linguist uh, and, and was partly one of the great authors of the non-dual philosophy, along with Shankara and uh, Gaudapada and, and Chandrakirti. Another person I want to mention to you who you may know about because of his popular writings is Dan Siegel who writes about, he, he coined his approach to the mind interpersonal neurobiology. And if you understand that, what he's doing with, that, with those words is he's saying, the mind is something that's interpersonal. It's not, you're not stuck in your body and, and locked out from other people. And it's also something that's neurobiological. That is, that impacts your biology through your nervous system And so, and this is all based on his understanding of complexity theory, which is quite elegant. So these are great. And basically what we're doing now is we really have challenges to this reductive model that mind and brain are just completely different things, or they're really the same thing. And, and and mind is really a non-entity or a cipher. Um, And we're also having challenges to the view that there's only one true description of reality, that reality has to either be consciousness or matter mind or body subject or object it can't be a dance of both so this is the way our science has been working for the last five centuries uh and here's my definition of embodied mind okay so in the embodied dimension or vertically speaking right when we're talking about mind interacting with body mind is a self-transcending information membrane right it's a it's a capacitor it's an interface. It guides mind-body adaptation. The purpose of the mind is to help us adapt by filtering and buffering freshly experienced input It adapts by learning and having experience right here and now and then that's encoded into software memories and wetware neural networks that modulate our our genome Right, so the idea here is Mind is very much a piece of the, that's why evolution bothered to, to evolve a mind, because it's doing something, guys. <laughs> it's really important. It's, it is a part of the mechanism, it's just the least tangible part of the mechanism. It doesn't look like a mechanism. What it's doing is like an information transducer that's allowing us to, to gather fresh information and use that to, up, to inform how we read our genes. So we can restructure our nervous system and our way of being based on the current conditions, what we're learning right now from each other and from the world about what's happening. What do I need? Do I need to be uh, you know, pleasant and friendly? Do I need to be tough and, and, uh, and strong? Uh, what do I need in order to thrive in this world? Well, that change depends. I also have an intersubjective definition of mind. <clears throat> And basically, this is to understand that in the social dimension, any individual human mind is embedded in an interpersonal, right, that means two bodies, intersubjective, two minds, an intergenerational field, multiple parents, children, parents, children, teachers, students, of shared experience and communal learning, right? So our minds, we think of them as just separate. I'm just, my mind is just over here, but no think about everything in your mind just about everything in your mind came from other people <laughs> your language your fantasies your your memory a lot of your memories include other people uh, so really mind is like a, like a, like a, a medium or a, a, a transducer that allows us to uh, conduct or transmit and and benefit from learned information that's spread across relationships, across communities, across generations. And we have to understand it's functioning in that social way, right? So not only is mind inherently mind-body connective, because its function is to inform the body, to wake it up. That's its function, is to say, hey body, you need to, you need to produce a little bit more of these chemicals. And it's inherently social. It's inherently connected to others because its function is to learn from others and share with others what its personal experience are. And together, really, we come up with something bigger. So now I'm gonna just give you a brief little uh, detour here, connect you to Nagarjuna, that's Nagarjuna. Uh, He's a very colorful, fascinating figure from the second century. He was a minister to a a king in South India. And he's probably the person who's most responsible for making non-duality the favorite philosophy of India and Tibet and much of Asia. Uh, Non-duality doesn't exist as a philosophy in the West. We just don't have it. We have have monism, we have dualism, and we have pluralism. But we don't have the idea that something uh, may not fit into any of those categories. Uh, And here's his definition of what non-dualism, he says, the Buddhists teach like, like grammar school teachers, whatever the students need, Some, they teach them to renounce vice, some to cultivate virtue, some teachings based on dualism, that is, samsara nirvana, you you know, Purusha Prakriti. But some, they teach the profound, uh, inspiring practice of non-dualism, right? The uh, practice of enlightenment, and he just defined it as the openness or the emptiness that is the womb of compassion, a very compelling definition, right? The purpose of our emptiness, purpose of our open mind is to connect with others. Um, but basically I'm going to say that what is non-dual interactionism? This is a model that says that all we really know is that life is a network of infinite relativity and that within that relativity there's no independent, uh, you know, intrinsically real thing. There's no thing that it is what it is separate from relations. And as a result, the whole idea of duality, the whole idea that a binary opposition like mind, matter, inside, outside could really define reality is not very humble, is not very modest and it's not very realistic. The reality is all our categories, all our binary categories are only relatively useful. Like if I'm tall next to my one son, I have two sons. So one next to one son, I'm the tall one and next to the other one, I'm the short one. So which am I, tall or short, okay? So that's the way the world entirely works. Everything is what it is in relation to everything else, not in any other way, not because of what it is intrinsically. And hence, any way of describing the world has to respect that at the heart of it all, there's this non-duality, there's this, there's this uh, reality that transcends our categories, that transcends our labels, that transcends even our wish to like it or dislike it, have it or get rid of it. Uh, That reality is infinite network of of, of relationality and complexity. This is basically what it's saying. The only thing you can reduce everything to is an infinite network of relationality and complexity. Right, and if you reduce things to that, then you'll know that if you describe something as brain, it, you just kind of it 's just for the purposes of discussion or, or research if you describe something as mind it 's just for the purposes of research you don't get carried away with yourself and think oh it's, it, the brain is really what it is or the mind is really what it is uh, and, and another aspect of this is that this th- this allows us to sort of really understand why to, that the mind is not it can't be reduced to one thing which so that's monism the mind is really just Life is, everything is just one thing. That's monism, it's all matter, or it's all mind, or it's all the, whatever, God. Uh, it's two things, it's matter and mind, Purusha Prakriti, or it's many things. It's a bunch of little things that come together, that's atomism. And basically what it's saying is no. Practically speaking, the only thing that makes sense is for us to understand that ultimately, things are really infinitely, seamlessly, relative, complex, and interdependent. And what we call them has to be contextual. We have to have a reason for talking about things in a certain way, in a certain context. And that's not absolute, it's relative. So I'm I'm hoping that I'm making a little sense, but I just wanted to give you a little preview of coming attractions and a little hope that we're not stuck in dualism forever, okay? But I, I would just point out, humbly speaking, as a Western somebody raised and educated as a Westerner, that this solution really almost is nowhere in Western thought. And that's part of the reason why we don't have the kind of mental flexibility uh, with understanding mind-body relations that yoga does, or or, uh, Buddhist uh, neuroscience. So now I'm going to talk about some new developments in science that have made people really look twice at our basic assumptions, right? So basically, it's stress and neuroplasticity. These are two things that have shown us very powerfully that mind does matter, and that mind is constantly interacting with energy, with brain, with structure, with genomes, and we just the, the science is just there. We can't deny it anymore. Stress, we started researching stress in the 50s, and now we understand it from top to bottom. The chemicals, the way it affects the genes, What are the ideas that produce stress? What are the emotions that produce stress? What are the instincts that produce stress? What are the chemicals that we really understand the heck out of it? Uh, And it's a good thing because we have way too much of it. Uh, Hans Sailor was the one who started this. And uh, and then there are others uh, who really looked at the different parts of stress. The whole idea of stress research is that first, the big discovery is stress isn't what stresses us out. Like when I say I, I had a stressful day, I think I had traffic. Well, nowadays, we don't have any traffic, right? <laughs> We're all stuck <laughs> in one place or another. Uh, or I had whatever, you know, somebody called me up and complained or had a terrible day and I wanted to, I had to, so we think that what is stresses us, which we call the stressor in stress research, right, is is the, is really the source of our stress. But research shows that of the harm done by stress is actually not dependent on the the, the stressor, the thing that's triggering or challenging us. It's dependent on the way we process. So it's the way we perceive, emote, and viscerally respond to stress, the way we live with stress over time, that's what determines whether we're really stressed or not. Uh, And So those are all internal variables, uh, and Sheldon Cohen has a, a simple model for showing that that there are four uh, phases to the response, perceptual, right? Do I appraise this thing as a threat to me? Does this seem like a threat to me, emotional? Now I'm really upset. You know, my boss gave me a deadline. I'm not going to keep it. I know I'm going to get fired. I'll wind up homeless. I'll get a fatal disease and then I'll be dead. So his deadline has now become a death threat, okay? Because that's appraisal. And we know we laugh because we all do this. Our minds have evolved to calculate the worst trajectory instantaneously before we even know it. And then we believe it because of our survival bias or as I'll call our negativity bias. So perceived stress, emotional stress, all those unpleasant emotions, anger, fear, shame, and so on that we all spend too much time living in, And then they start to trigger our our brainstem, our oldest forms of stress living in the brainstem, uh, the fight, flight, faint, freeze, right? So that's the autonomic nervous system, uh, parasympathetic and sympathetic or vagal is another word for parasympathetic and sympathetic. Uh, And those are the kind of uh, things that are the built-in regulating, neural regulating systems that are designed to get us moving or to or to, to, to have us freeze uh, under real imminent threat circumstances. And the c- acute stress really isn't a problem. If we have a little bit of stress, we're going to be fine. We'll bounce back. But it's chronic stress all the time, over and over again. And here's the thing, because our stress is primarily dependent on the way our minds work, our emotions, and our visceral, unconscious, knee-jerk, instinctive habits or reflexes, we can actually spend way too much time getting way too stressed out about things. We're set up that way because in fact, we're wired to have a 10 to 100 fold survival bias. That is we focus 10 to 100 times more on things that could threaten us than things that could please us. We remember them for longer. We forget them uh, with greater difficulty. If we wanna forget a trauma, it's very hard to do. If you wanna forget that wonderful evening we had three months back, uh, it's easy to do. Uh, and this is all about survival and evolution. So the problem is we're, we're magnets for stress and actually we don't, and even though we're at the top of the food chain, we don't live lives of just a few moments of stress now and then, we live lives of chronic repeated stress. And we end up at the end of the day feeling like, how did I get through the day? And that's mostly because of the way we're wired for, for survival. Uh, and there's some researchers, oh, my dear friend of mine who just died, Bruce McEwen, who, uh, you know, uh, is probably the world's international expert on stress, talked about how stress has accumulated, cumulative effect, right, that it actually, the more stress we experience in any particular day, week, month, year, and, and life, the more it wears and tears at our nervous system. It wears down our brain, it wears down our immune system, it shifts us into Extremely unhealthy uh, um, chemical uh, landscape. It all as a means of survival. There are survival. There are evolutionary reasons why stress does this. Um, unfortunately, essentially, if we're over, if we're on stress overload, and we're per- perceiving even the, the least sort of frustrated look on the part of our of our friend or partner or or, t- or teammate uh, as a threat, then we're going to be actually wearing wearing and tearing our system down over time in a way that's really problematic. And hence, we have what what some people call the diseases of civilization. right? That is the diseases that come from, we have long, comfortable lives, relatively speaking, more so than anybody ever did. And yet, we have all these high levels of of behavior, mostly behavioral uh, disorders, addictions, you know, obesity, uh, to some extent heart disease, even you could say there's an argument for cancer being somewhat influenced by stress. Uh, and of course, this is also sensitive to uh, socioeconomic status, uh, racial and, and social location, uh, abuse, trauma, a bad attachment to our part. So essentially the, the more stress we have, the more we become stress magnets, the more we learn how to, how to attract stress. Here are some of our friends, Sheldon Cohen, Bruce is in the middle, Hansela. So stress has shown us that you know, these, the, the workings of our mind, our appraisal of how threatening something is, our emotional response to that feeling threatened, and our I- instinctive uh, reflexes, I- in internal mind-body reflexes, actually impact the brain and body in very powerful ways and they may be responsible for the majority of the diseases that are afflicting us as humans, both mental and, and physical, okay? So this is big news and it's, you know, uh, it makes people think, well, maybe the mind really does matter, right? Uh, what is, you know, what's happening in the brain and, and how's it happening? Again, we've got these, the brain is a complicated thing. We have multiple layers. Uh, it evolved, we started out reptiles, then we became little mammals like that cute little possum, then we became more complicated social animals like the monkey, and finally we became super smart animals like the dolphin. Uh, and we accumulated these different information processors over time, but they work together in a funny way. They don't work like you think. It's not like the smartest one is always in charge. That's not true. The, the most evolved part of our brain is not always in charge. As we all know, whenever we get a little upset, we become really foolish and we can do stupid, self-destructive things, say the wrong thing, do the wrong thing, because why the, the older parts of our brain get into the driver's seat when they perceive a certain kind of threat. And that's called the per, perceived safety hierarchy. I'll, I'll jump that, right? So we have these different parts of the brain. The neocortex uh, is for, is for a real large-scale group cooperation. The limbic system is for one-on-one connection, bonding. The brainstem is for being just good reptiles, like happy reptiles, keeping our our system together. And we also have neural networks. So each of those different levels of the brain is complicated and has different things operating within it. Uh, Some of them are stress prone and some of them are stress reducing, right? So some of the networks that are operating in the brain are there primarily to get us freaked out. And then there are others that are there primarily to calm us down. And this is the key thing that we need to understand about the brain, is that at every level, there are parts of it and networks within it that can promote our stress response, and there are networks within it that can promote our relaxation, self-care, social connection. And we need to be able to tip the balance, right? That's really where contemplative practice comes in, as I'll say. The autonomic nervous system we're understanding more about is complicated, Uh, it also evolved, we have, a, as mammals, we have a special version of the autonomic nervous system that allows us to regulate the old fight, flight, faint, freeze reflexes, provided that we can give our, we've provided our, our minds and brains get what, what Stephen Porges calls cues of safety and connection, right? So, the, so the, the mammalian brain is designed so that if we're around friendly mammals, we feel secure. If we're not around friendly mammals, we feel scared, right? And, and there's wiring that allows us to calm our system when we see friendly face or hear a friendly voice or speak in gentle tones or smile. That calms our brain. Unfortunately, if we're not using that wiring, it's not helping us. So, but that's something to work with. We as mammals have the capacity to regulate our brain stem if we understand how the autonomic nervous system works. And that's key to yoga. Right, because yoga and and tantra are all about learning to modulate the brainstem using breathing, uh, recitation, chanting and all these things. So there's what's called the perceived safety hierarchy. Right, so the perceived safety hierarchy is when we're feeling safe and connected, the smartest part of our brain is running the whole brain. and, uh, And it's basically in calm mode, it's in this, what we call smart vagal mode. That is the, the new branch of the vagal nervous system that only we have as mammals is calm, is chilling everything out. We're very chill and we're, we're very able to play with others, engage with others. But once we feel alienated, we shift into an older part of our brain called the default mode, where we start ruminating about ourselves, getting a little more t- prone to wandering mind and also starting getting more negative and hypervisual. So at the, even at the level of the neocortex, our brains can be socially engaged or they can be self enclosed or, or self protective and, and there are different networks operating at that level. At the, at the limbic system or the emotional brain level, we developed when we became mammals. If we feel safe and warm and connected to others, we have this powerful compassionate response that makes us feel great. But once we feel a little unsure or rejected or hurt or abandoned, then we shift into the amygdala uh, hijack, right? We, 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 were, we sort of suddenly shift into the frightened animal mode uh, and that turns off our higher brain entirely and we became, become very upset and we start to feel our heart pounding and give our, our, our fight flight system uh, a little workout. And uh, in the most immediate stress, like there's a saber tooth tiger staring me in the face we faint or freeze, right? So the brainstem kicks in and the oldest part of our brainstem operates. So at each of these levels, there are different uh, uh, networks and I'm not gonna go into them in great detail. I mentioned one of them. What I'm gonna say is that at each of these levels of the brain, we've got a a, a way that that part of the brain operates uh, driven by stress. And we've got a way that part of the brain operates driven by safety and connection. And, and, and unfortunately, we're biased toward the stress response. That's why our brains wear, oh, get, are constantly reactive, and that's why they wear down over time. Uh, here's the default mode, which I mentioned is the self-preoccupation center, or the self-rumination, like a self-loop in the brain. Uh, and, and unfortunately, what happens is we're in the, when we're in the default mode, we're unhappy, right? Because we don't feel safe. Right? And we're thinking of all the worst things that could, that could happen to us because I'm not amongst friends. So we're busy looking like, who's gonna come and get me? Uh, I, where are my friends? And we're, and we're remembering all our worst fears and that makes us unhappy. Um, at the limbic system level, same thing happens. Stress uh, happens when we, when we scan, we're constantly scanning the faces and body language of the people around us using our mirror neurons. And if we see signs that people are upset, they subliminally remind us of when we were upset and we get upset. And when we get upset, we get alarmed. And before we even know it, we're, we're reacting uh, in a situation and we're not thinking. So that's unfortunately what the amygdala does most of the time. Uh, and fortunately for us, You know, when it does that, it hijacks the brain. So you can see the green part is when the brain is feeling safe and connected. The newer part of the brain is operating it. But when it's feeling threatened, the older limbic amygdala and other limbic centers are driving it. There's an amygdala hijack. Uh, And even in the brainstem, there are different operating systems, right? So in the, in the, in the, in the, uh, at the level of the limbic system, We've got an empathy system that connects us to others in love and care. And we have uh, an abandonment system, a panic system that uh, forces us to fight or fly or cling uh, whenever we feel threatened. Um, And uh, that's where our trauma lives as well. The brainstem, we've got this new part of the brainstem that that can run the brainstem as a social animal Right, that's the new uh, nucleus of the of the, the ventral vagal uh, complex uh, that we only got as mammals, and the older parts of the sympathetic and parasympathetic in the back of the brainstem that run us as frightened animals or dino, inner dinosaurs. Right, so the brainstem too has different networks, and it can operate either in socially engaged mode. We can be friendly reptiles, playful reptiles, or we can be self protective, and and. Uh, you know, difficult or solitary reptiles. So I'm not gonna go into these in great detail, except to say that this, uh, the autonomic system runs through our whole bodies and talk about mind and body. Some of you may see a parallel here to the yogic nervous system, which I'll make very explicit later, right? But the sympathetic and parasympathetic feed our whole body and they regulate our whole body and all of our organs. Uh, And as a result, uh, you know, we get, when we have stress, we can have all these mind-body problems. So if you're, I'm not sure exactly what your work is, if you're yoga therapists, if you're mind-body health givers, whatever it is that you do, this is really how it's operating. And stress is triggering uh, the autonomic nervous system that's, that's wearing our organs down and, and making us vulnerable to stress, uh, to, to, to illness. Um, and even cancer because immunity is powerfully impacted. Even just the perception that I'm alone uh, shifts the way my immune system operates so that I'm, uh, my immune system is operating like a, a solitary animal that might, that, that might get uh, uh, attacked at any moment. Uh, and that's not actually helpful for fighting off cancer or immunity. So there we have the pro, this is the beautiful research done by Stephen Cole that shows that, uh, a perceived isolation uh, triggers this shift in, uh, in, in a gene regulation uh, toward inflammation. It even, uh, stress even starts to unwind our, our, our genes and, and creates and cause cell death. So stress is a major problem. Uh, it also uh, is very social. I'm not going to go into that. Uh, the worst case of stress is trauma, where we, we feel so life threatened that we can't even, we can't even think about it. We have to just wall it off. We get totally overwhelmed, our circuits shut down, and we put it off in the corner somewhere and then it comes back later to haunt us. And, and that's very much a mind-body process as well. So uh, I'm not gonna talk about all this. So there's Bessel and, and Stephen Porges. Uh, so basically I'm just gonna allude to the fact that the other, may, this is one test case that shows mind powerfully impacts body and brain. Okay, the other is neuroplasticity, which you've all heard about a million times by now, right? And that is the idea that, that uh, neurons that fire together wire together, right? That where we put our attention, what we're experiencing changes the way the, electro, the uh, electrical uh, activity in our neurons, that changes the blood flow, the blood, that changes the chemistry, they start to grow if we're using them. And if we're not using them, they start to shrink. So what happens over time, is that um, you know, if we experience a lot of stress, we're essentially rewiring ourselves constantly every day to become more and more stress magnets. Unfortunately, the parts of the brain that support stress, the networks that support stress, grow when we use them. Plus, plasticity isn't just a good thing. There is negative neuroplasticity as well as positive neuroplasticity. Negative neuroplasticity is neuroplasticity uh, you know, under that—that's learning aversive or negative or threatening experience, and then preparing us for the worst. Positive neuroplasticity is the counterbalance. It's experiencing safety and connection, and preparing our brains and nervous systems for the best. And that's what—that's why we need contemplation to tip that balance. So this is here's just some cells. You see, uh, neuroplasticity happens at every level of the brain. Uh, here's showing how trauma circuits or stress circuits grow under stress while uh, integrative circuits or calming circuits shrink. uh, And it's a mess, right? And uh, this is uh, Eric Kandel who won the Nobel prize for his work uh, talks about negative and positive neuroplasticity and talks about how psychotherapy works using neuroplasticity. And that's basically I think uh, enough for today. So we have some time to, to talk uh Is this all kind of totally familiar business as usual for you guys is there Is there anything that I know there was a lot of information but anything in particular that uh struck you as uh piqued your interest or raised some questions
2: um One of my perennial questions as I listen to to uh speakers is um i'm always wondering how yoga is understood, and the subtitle for your talk was. Um, Yogic science of integration and at one point in your talk you mentioned that yoga is all about um, uh, Modulating the brain stem by chanting breathing etc. And so I thought well, that's an interesting Definition of yoga, but I wonder if you would want to add to that a little bit like how are how are you understanding the concept of yoga? In terms of the research and work that you do and also, you know from a Buddhist perspective, too
1: Yes, okay. Well, so yoga uh, you know, of course, as you know, it, it re- refers to this uh, uh, notion of yoking or integrating things that would otherwise be disparate. And, th- and you know, so, uh, you know, one way of thinking, like for example, my friend Dan Siegel, one way of thinking about, uh, uh, so the conscious in, uh, regulation or, or development of the human brain, like human brain is just an amazing organ. That is, so there's no like of it anywhere. And, um, and, and it's like the best equipment to do just about anything, uh, except maybe to stop worrying. Uh, and, 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 but one specific element of it is that it's set up to be a little bit like, you know, in a ship, you have watertight compartments, where if one floods, the other one is all sealed off. So there's a fragmentation built in to the brain. The brain starts is by default f- fragmentary. That's why uh, our, our uh, limbic brain is scanning uh, faces and environments looking for danger when we don't even know it and getting triggered when we don't even know it. That's why our brainstem is guarding, our nervous system is, is all tied up in knots right throughout our body and stressing us out without our even knowing it because our consciousness doesn't integrate all the the levels and layers of the brain. So one way to think about integration, about yoga in a modern way is that yoga is about the science of integrating the human nervous system and mind and body with awareness. It's not just integrating it in any old way, it's integrating with higher awareness, that higher awareness that's able to get the bigger picture to share with the maximum number of people, to get to have multiple perspectives and points of view, and therefore has generally the most intelligent understanding of relativity and complexity, right? So, but that's not the way we're wired. We're not wired that the smartest part of the brain is aware of everything or running everything. We're, it's wired so that it's working as long as we feel safe, but once we stop feeling safe, it's offline and we become frightened animals or frightened children. So yoga is really all about helping to give our mind and body these regular cues of safety and connection. When we're breathing consciously, we're actually activating the autonomic, the vagal nervous system. The smart vagal nerve, the new branch of the vagal nerve that we evolved when we became mammals, specifically is activated by breathing, also by chanting, also by smiling, by seeing smiling faces, by hearing uh, calming tones of voice. The movements of yoga, moving the body in a gentle, gracious, disarming and opening way, they give messages to the other branch of the vagal nerve, which is tied into everything. And they're basically saying, you're okay. You're, you're just, you, you know, you're relaxed, you're moving, everything, you're not in danger, you can feel your hands, they're, they're feeling fine. Uh, and deep breathing does the same thing, deep breathing and chanting, it doesn't just involve the upper, other, the upper branch of the autonomic nervous system, but it also involves the, the lower branch because, which, which governs the abdomen, the pelvis, uh, and the sort of, uh, uh, you know, the more powerful levels of relaxation. So essentially, yoga is about bringing awareness into engagement with the whole nervous system, and especially learning how to regulate the primal, uh, uh, the primal uh, uh, neural pathways of the autonomic nervous system, which are the primal regulators of our basic state of consciousness. Uh, in such a way that we're always able to tap into the well-being system, we're always able to stay fully aware and connected, and our brains are, inter, are integrated with, you know, our whole bodies and our deeper, our full potential. So that's how I, I would understand it. And, and, the, and research on the autonomic nervous system is absolutely, it's like the missing link. It's been so helpful in terms of translating how yogic practice influences the oldest part of the brain and also then has all this powerful effects on the body. So that's what I'm going to talk about next week, and I'm going to go into the map of the subtle body, the chakras, and, and line them up and show you how I believe they relate to the different parts of the brain and the different parts of the autonomic nervous system, just to help you connect the Western model with the, with the Indic model. What, what, the, what we've experienced as presence, presence of mind, the presence, embodied presence, or presence to others or the world around us is very much about the prefrontal cortex being online and a, a network they call the central executive network, which I'll tell you a little bit about next week. And that's what essentially uh, Dan Siegel describes this as like the, the the prefrontal cortex is like the conductor of the brain when it's serving, it's like the conductor of the orchestra of the brain. So when it's th- when it's, and when it's doing a good job, and it's conducting the whole orchestra of the brain, we feel present. We can, our, 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 the insula is what connects us to the, to the body. So we feel our body very poignantly, very viscerally, very vulnerably. And also we feel connected to others in the world around us. And that actually helps us feel positive. Because generally what we're doing, it's not fighting off saber toothed tigers. Generally, even whether it's cleaning a spot of, of dirt off something, or it's, shaking hands or, or seeing a smiling face, generally what we're doing is pretty good news. Uh, so if we can pay attention to it because we feel safe and connected, we're gonna, it's going gonna, it's gonna to fill us with a sense of, uh, I, can, I can be here now. It's good to be here now. Um, so Joe, I'd
2: like to, uh, the first question that came in came from Caro from or Charo. Um, he wrote, fascinating talk, thank you. Can you say more about the term mind-brain? My modern way of looking at things is wondering where the mind is since it's about information.
1: Yeah. Well, again, I think that this is the problem that we have because we are, we're, very, we're all very inculcated in a reductive way of thinking. In other words, we think that what's real, what's easiest for us to understand, is a hard bits of matter, like the little billiard bowls of atoms and we think we know where they are. Like we think because we can look at the p- pictures of the brain or we can look at a, a brain in, that's been preserved or something, we see something, we think we know what we got. But actually the brain is really, and even that hard ball, you, the marble that, m- you know, my son holds in his hand is not as solid as it appears. It's permeated by space, energy, it's mostly space and energy. And you don't know where it is. If you try to pin it down, any single piece of that, you know, what you find is that you, it, it dissolves into an infinite network of relations and complexity. And so actually that's part of the issue of mind. Mind is, that is the most fluid, the least material, the most airy and spacious part of our, uh, of our uh, elemental makeup. But it doesn't mean it's any less uh, present than my nose, right? Uh, it's just not present in the same way that we think of as very tangible. It's not present in the sense that I can put my finger on it. Um, I can put my awareness on it, though. Um, so, so I would say mind is from the from the my point of view, and I think from the um, from the uh, Indic point of view, the Indic contemplative science point of view, mind pervades all aspects of our of our minds and bodies. In fact, in, in, in a lot of Indic worldviews, like yoga, Sankhya yoga, and the Buddhist tradition, mind is actually also considered to be an element of, of uh, objective reality. In other words, it's just considered to be part of nature. That it's like one of the, there's, there's six elements. One of them is mind. Um, but you can think of it as, you know, nowadays, we can think of uh, mind as the capacity to process uh, information, right? It's a capacity. So that's why it's not tangible, because it's, it's not actually the information. It's not the binary information of, gee, that's green or that's blue. It's the uh, openness and the capacity to, to illuminate the distinction between green and blue. So again, I mean, we could go into this forever. I think it's, uh, and that's really what a meditation practice is about is learning how to develop a kind of very conscious relationship with with your mind uh, as a real uh, force of nature. And even though you can't put your finger on it, but to be able to put your attention on it, and then to be able to use that attention on the mind to monkey with the material elements, uh, that is to say, to move your body energy and through moving your body imagery to, sh- to change your body chemistry and structure. So this is about learning that we are these things that dreams are made of. We're very subtle intangible tangible things. We're not just the things we look at in the mirror and, and learning how to inhabit that and then uh, live from that sort of relatively immaterial, formless, open and, and connective capacity. So I hope I'm speaking English there, but I'm just being a little descriptive. Uh, was there another question? We're almost out of time, I think. But I'm Yes,
2: there, there is one more question from Thomas. Um, he wrote in, if a Buddhist teaches, te- teacher, teacher, I think he means, asks you, have you discovered your mind? How does one respond to that? My thought is that the mind is where your attention is focused
1: well uh so that's the activity of mind or the or the that's attention there's a separate word for that mind is defined as clarifying awareness as i said so mind is defined in buddhist psychology as a capacity not as a content uh and where is that clarifying awareness well it you know as like yoga in the in the buddhist model of of the mind uh it is located in in interpenetrating the different levels of the mind-body process, right? So that means that there's coarse mind and energy and matter, there's subtle mind, energy and matter, and there's extremely subtle mind, energy and matter. There's different layers of it. And depending on which layer we're talking about, it's in relation to specific things. So like coarse mind is related to my organs, Movement of my joints and hands and uh, you know my words and so on. Subtle mind is related to my inner reflections, like my dreams, my na- inner narrative. Uh, an extremely subtle mind is related to my primal uh, mood state, affective uh, state of consciousness. Uh, am I blissful? Am I uh, am I uh, uh, defensive or ang- or alienated? So it mind is located in many, all over, everywhere within the mind-body process and at different levels, there are different sort of uh, qualities of mind or aspects of mind. So there's a very, and I'll go into some of this next week. There's a very elaborate kind of phenomenology or science of understanding the different layers of mind. And we can also relate that to Western neurophysiology because in the Western neuroscience, we also recognize that there are different states of consciousness. There's waking consciousness there's dreaming consciousness there's dreamless sleep consciousness, orgasmic consciousness near death consciousness and and so that's sort of similar uh, there's a way of connecting the the uh, Western uh, anatomical map of, of where consciousness is uh, or where different states of consciousness are, are supported or active and the and the the indic map. Uh, I would also just say that, as far I think we're out of time, right? But as far as the uh, that other question of where my mind is, the other the, the sort of more profound answer is that when I look for my mind, I can't find it because it isn't it isn't reducible to anything, right? And that's where I think I'm not sure if it was the same person, Thomas. If it was you who asked, where do I find my mind? But the the paradox is that. Uh, You know, it's true when we look for our mind, we can't find it. Uh, You know, however, we we that gives us the false impression that it's less real or less present or solid or tangible than matter. But the reality is, if you go into a quantum lab. If you sit sit next to Einstein or Heisenberg or any of these, you know, uh, green or any of these newcomers. uh, You can't find matter either. They keep looking for the ultimate particle of matter and they, and they keep finding more and more subtle, you know, n- webs and networks of, of, of space and energy and, and, and non-locality and all of that stuff, that doesn't, that doesn't seem like matter either. So just, the reality is from, from a, a, non-dual, a non-dual point of view, you can't put your finger on anything, ultimately. If you look really carefully to reduce to the get to the bottom of anything, what you find is bottomlessness. Things are just an infinite network that you can keep going forever and ever looking for and learning more and more about how everything is connected to everything else. But you're not going to come up with that one thing that's the bottom of things or the beginning of things or the reality of things. So that's the that's the deceptive metaphor. That's what made us think we don't have minds is that we thought we had matter. Now we know we don't even have matter. So we're we're cool. <laughs> we don't have anything. <laughs> All right. Well, so we're out of time. Lovely spending some time with you. I hope you think more about questions and please bring them to our next meeting. And then we'll go more into into the science, the research on yoga meditation and and, and the subtle body and the Indic science of how to understand all of this, okay? So thank you very much.
2: Um, Thank you from all of us at Embodied Philosophy. We really appreciate having you here today.
1: So, So glad to be with you. Take care. Thank you.